0: Welcome to the Martech
1: podcast. Today we're going to discuss how to maximize your marketing spend through retargeting. Joining us is Daniel Danes-Hunt, Hunt, who is the founder at two companies, Inbound Ascension and Amp My Content, which are marketing agencies that specialize in traffic generation and retargeting. And today, Daniel is going to tell us how he recommends you develop a retargeting audience. Okay, here is my interview with Daniel danes Hunt, founder at Inbound Ascension
2: and Amp My Content. Daniel, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Like I said before, I'm a listener of the show, so it's always cool to get on shows that you actually listen to. A little bit surreal afterwards, but it's pretty cool. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to have you on the
1: show, and I'm glad we were able to connect. You were actually referred by another one of our podcast guests, so it's great to not only meet a listener, but you come highly recommended, and I'm
2: excited to talk a little bit about retargeting. Thank you so much. You're too kind, and whoever recommended me as well, I owe them a beer.
1: I have to look it up, but we'll figure it out at some point. Let's start off by talking a little bit about you. You're running two separate marketing companies, one about traffic generation and one about retargeting. Talk to me a little bit about your work and tell us about your companies.
2: It's one of those kind of long stories, how we got into business. We had a clothing company that did really, really well. We ended up selling that company. From that, we learned to market online. And so we started marketing with people, which is how we got into the retargeting business. I wrote a couple of case studies about retargeting, and they ended up being like the top 10 articles of all time on inbound.org, the top articles on growth hackers for two years in a row. So we ended up, even though I'm a paid ads specialist, somehow I'm also quite good at writing content. So we have two websites. We have one that is all about retargeting. So it's about Making more sales from the traffic you have. And then the other site is called AMP My Content, which teaches content marketing but effectively how to actually drive more traffic while writing less content. So the two fit together. One fills the pipeline, the other one helps convert those sales.
1: I'm not even going to hide it. I'm going to ask you for help promoting my content throughout this entire podcast. (laughs) And for anybody who doesn't realize that I am shamelessly asking for help and using this forum to uh, learn about marketing, that's one of the beauties of being the podcast host. But in this episode, it should be pretty transparent. Let's talk a little bit about traffic generation. Your AMP My Content, tell us a little bit about your strategies for content production, content distribution. How are you getting your content out there?
2: So a big thing for me is everyone's heard it before, but you need to be promoting content. Obviously, there's so many different reasons for it. But if I'm honest, it's almost a faster ROI than just writing new stuff. And it's a long term ROI as it generates traffic. So the beauty is if you are creating less, you can make it more effective. You can spend more time on that content and not feel like you need to be creating all the time. So obviously, you have to have good content if you're going out and promoting. We use whole heap of channels. So sometimes you get people who are only interested in one thing, but we use basically all of them, SEO and link building, all those kind of things we've gone. So a new article that we just released went from zero traffic to, I think, 32,000 impressions in Google in the last three months. So showing up for search terms and things like that. So I'm not opposed to SEO or Google and things. I also run a lot of paid traffic. So right now, when I push our content to a cold audience on Facebook for every dollar we spend, on average, we make about $22 back. That's not a bad ROI. It's pretty good, right? We also work with influencers. We work with forums. We do quite a lot of things. And what people don't realize is you usually get people who are just one channel. They are all inbound and they don't want to do outreach. Or they're all paid ads and they don't create any assets. Once the ads stop, they don't do anything for their business. Just paying the toll booth every time down the road. That's it, right? But if you actually use them together, every channel has strengths and weaknesses. Paid ads, you stop paying, you don't make anything. SEO doesn't do anything for months and months until it hits that point. So you have to supplement different promotion and traffic channels. Basically, if you want your content to succeed, there needs to be different elements overlapped to actually get that content out there and be seen. So you're talking about the marketing
1: mix and how you need not only to create content assets that are going to become more valuable over time, but you need to supplement your business initially with paid activity. This is something that we've talked about a fair amount on the show of when you're just starting out, the easiest way to get traction is to buy it. And as you're growing, you can't be reliant on paid acquisition or your business is going to get incredibly expensive. So you need to start working with influencers focusing on brand and building your content. As you're thinking about your content, you mentioned that you had an article that you published that got 30,000 clicks or visits within a couple of months. You know, are you taking an approach where you're paying to promote that piece of content and then it has enough traction where it's starting to pick up? Are you using SEO strategies? What are you doing to get your content out there so quickly and efficiently?
2: So during the early days, we are usually trying to leverage other people's audiences because no one wants to eat at an empty restaurant. I don't know if you've ever heard, but If you walk past an empty restaurant, you're less likely to go in. So they put the staff in the windows to eat their lunch. So then people say, oh, that food looks nice and they bring people in. It's kind of the same with content. So in the early days, we're normally leveraging earned media from influencers or forums and things like that to get initial traffic so we can start building up traction and trade up the chain. We'll also start paid ads immediately because we run for a sequence of testing and things to get the ad to be profitable. How I know if paid ads are profitable is we know how many leads it takes to make a sale. We know how much a lead is worth. Therefore, I know how much I can afford to pay to get traffic, to get a lead and things like this. So it's all reverse engineered. So we'll start paid ads almost from day one of an article being published.
1: Okay. And basically what you're doing is you're trying to figure out what the conversion rate is from your piece of content.
2: Yeah. So generally, if someone finds it organically, they will convert higher, but it's not always the case. So... It sounds crazy. Our results with opt-in rates and things are just off the charts. Most content converts at about 2%. Our lowest is 15%. And this new article that we just wrote is 86%. 86 out of 100 readers become subscribers. So we could promote that to the moon. And even if the advert was awful, it would still be profitable. Fortunately, the advert isn't awful. So it gets leads for $1.50 New Zealand, which is like a dollar US.
1: So talk to me about what makes the difference in conversion rates between some of the content you're producing and the average content a marketer is creating.
2: I'm a big nerd on this kind of stuff on consumer behavior and things. So I basically, I looked at the best information out there. I don't know if you've ever read Contagious by Jonah Berger, where he talks about why certain content goes viral. That's from a social aspect. Then we looked at it from kind of an SEO aspect as well, what kind of content does really well over there. And we found an overlap of certain things. So there's nine elements. It's basically content that builds authority and trust because people, they're not going to give their email to people they don't trust. Likewise, they're not going to buy. There has to be content that builds reciprocity, the need to pay it forward, to pay it back. You do that by creating content that's high value, that's educational, that connects emotionally with where the reader is. So it's not just about writing about a topic. It's also understanding why that topic is important to that audience member and connecting. Because in that way, they will actually consume and they'll go into the content and they won't bounce and things like this. So if you can tick all these boxes and hit all these elements, the content's already going to do well. Then we also have what we call a hyper-specific next step offer, which is basically a lead magnet offer that's unique to every piece of content. The thing is, it's unique to every article and it's designed to be the next logical step that people want to take after reading that article. If you think about it, someone has this pain point and they came to read about your topic and you get them really excited and they can see the pain and they can see the transformation that can happen. If you don't give them an action to take, if you give them just some kind of generic lead magnet, some of them will take that generic lead magnet to hear more from you. But more likely, what's going to happen is they're going to go on, open up a new tab, search for that next thing that they want. And then they've got to go to a competitor. So your content needs to be able to give that next action. For example, in what our article, we talk about those nine elements of content. And in there, there's a bonus offer where we say, hey, we took an old article and we updated it to meet these nine elements. So you can see both of them side-by-side side comparison. There's also a video breakdown where we talk about all of this. And also there's a wall chart for the nine elements so you can put on your wall so you don't miss it. So it's the next thing that they would wanna take. They can see that they can improve it. And now you can actually go and see us do that live. You can see this comparison side-by-side. Side. So it makes sense. It's the next thing they wanna take.
1: Okay, so once somebody is engaging with your content, you're building some level of impulse, some authority, some trust, and you're creating, I think this is probably an overused term, but a micro engagement, a micro conversion to get them through the next step and you're walking people down the path of your funnel.
2: Exactly. I forget the copywriter's name, but he said it's like the purpose of any sentence on your sales page is to get someone to read the next sentence. I use a lot of direct response copywriting principles in all of our content and all of our ads and all of our emails and things like this. So my content is almost like a sales page in that it's designed to pull people through and connect with certain things and to tick certain boxes so that by the time they get through it, most visitors to our site will opt into every article that we have. So I can see that someone's read six articles, they've opted in six times, things like this. This is all building trust every time.
1: The thing that you just said that really sticks out to me is the purpose of every sentence is to get you to the next sentence. So, as you're doing your copywriting, you need to think about not only driving people to the call to action at the end of the page, you need to think about each sentence being a call to action to continue reading.
2: Exactly. It's why the headline is so important because if the headline doesn't connect, they don't read the rest of the post. So, the rest of it might as well be blank. If the introduction isn't good enough to pull them in, then they're not going to read the rest of the post. So, again, You have to connect and pull in and there has to be this emotional connection and drive them down the page. A lot of people will write content, educational content, as kind of meat and potatoes. You do step one, you do step two, you do step three. That's good. And they know it's valuable. Like we're told all the time, you have to promote content, but no one really connects with the emotional reason behind it. And it is you are frustrated in writing over time and you are churning out content when your family's asleep and it's not driving an ROI to your business. And you've got 55 blog posts and things like this. If we connect with that and I can say I was in that situation and then I learned how to actually promote my content so that I could write less, but I could get more traffic to it. Suddenly people are sitting up in their chairs and they're alert or they miss their bus because they're still reading it on their phone. So we have articles. I have one that's eight chapters. The PDF is 299 pages. And yet people read it from start to finish, implement it, take action, which is huge as well, by the way. So many people will read content and not take action on it. So if you can actually get people to do something, it feels good as a content creator to say, you can actually see that it's helping people. But as a business owner, it also (laughs) helps.
1: So as the purpose of this conversation is around traffic generation, and eventually we're going to talk about retargeting, I understand that having an underlying, compelling piece of content is important. If you don't have good content, there's no point in promoting it. And you're saying, take the time to write good content, learn how to write that content, spend the time to make sure that each sentence is engaging enough to merit somebody reading the next sentence. Once you have great content, you got a pristine, amazing piece of content. It's ready to
2: roll. What do you do with it? I go through three phases of promotion. The first thing I'm trying to do, like we said, is we're trying to get influencers to pick it up because it gets initial traction. I want to try and get a burst of traffic almost straight away because that will pay for all the time and effort it took to make the post. So many people will write content and not even see an ROI for like a year from that time it took to write the article, you know? So when you
1: say you're trying to get influencers to help you with syndication, I'm paraphrasing your exact words, but... How are you going out and reaching the influencers and how are you putting that list together?
2: I will usually have a list of people who have my audience, who ideally I would love to work with, who I can also help because it makes a difference if they're not going to really pay much attention to you if you're not of any help to them or their audience. Because that's what they're doing. Basically, they're putting you in front of their audience and there has to be value directly to them. So here's the sneaky thing. Have you ever heard of the IKEA principle? No. So let's say you have two tables, you have a table that you bought for $300 and you have an Ikea table for 45 bucks that you spent a weekend putting together and you cut your fingers with its stupid little spanners trying to set it up. I'm terrible at that stuff. Well, I think the design doesn't really help. There's this bias that things that we invest time into, we value more. So if you were to sell the two tables at the end, you would probably sell the expensive one at a loss and you would try and make money off the one you put together. It's kind of crazy. Because we've put our time and effort into it, we want to see more of a return. So if you can get influencers on board with your content before it's published, and if you can get them to help improve it and show them in a good light and help to improve that content, they are so much more likely to then say, as soon as it goes live, hey, you have to check out this article by my friend Daniel. It talks about this, 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 and this. Because not only are they invested in it and they want to see you succeed, but also, usually it shows them in a good light. Maybe you talked about an article that they referenced before. Maybe you got updated information. Maybe it was just simply that they are better at a specific element and you asked them for advice on that. So you can get buy-in from these guys early on. They're so much more likely to then push it. So Glenn Alsop, who runs ViperChill, he tweeted about one of our articles and we got something like 300 subscribers in the first hour. A special
1: thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. So I understand engaging with influencers early in the process of content development. Would you have something for them to review? You're building some affinity with them and they want to help you and they feel invested in what you're doing. Are you reaching out to these people cold? Do you already have relationships with them? Where do you find the list of influencers?
2: Sometimes there's a very tepid relationship in that we follow each other. We comment on each other's articles, things like that. Ideally, I will try and insert five to 10 different influences into the article, if possible, if it makes sense, just so that I have these people tied in at the start.
1: That's funny. There's a strategy that we're about to implement for the MarTech podcast, where when we mention someone in our show, we're going to start creating video clips and sharing those clips with the person to be like, hey, you were mentioned on the show. You should share this episode. Exactly. And you're essentially doing that, but before the content has been published.
2: So it does work to say, hey, you were mentioned and you were featured, and what they'll do is they might retweet it. But if you actually get them involved in the creation beforehand, which is, I'd have to think of how to do it with a podcast episode. Maybe you would get like unique quotes and things, or maybe you could get like a sound bite or something like that. Well,
1: exactly. It's like during the editorial process, you create the clip, you share it with somebody saying this episode is going live on this date. Just wanted to let you know we mentioned you in advance. Exactly.
2: So by building that relationship as well, it can be so much more beneficial. So Joanna Wee of Copy Hackers, I reached out to her to say we were featured. She read the article, loved it, tweeted about it. She wasn't someone we worked with beforehand. A couple of people we did work beforehand, so like Susan Patel and things like where we would ask advice on the content, Ramsey Taplin of the blog tyrant. So we're asking for his advice in advance and he gave us some good feedback about the content was amazing, but the graphics that we had were a bit samey and it didn't help us stand out. So we got more custom made graphics and things made. I then reach out to him to say thank you and show him that I did the work because so many people don't do the work. So if someone does that, if he took the time to give me that advice and I took action on it, he's going to be like, oh my God, someone paid attention. It happens all the time. We can get all these readers and subscribers, if someone actually reads my article, follows a process and takes action and gets results, I will write an entire post about that person. I will run ads to that article. I would do all these kind of things because it's such a rare thing to happen. So if you ask for feedback and build a relationship, but then also take the feedback and show that you did it, it's huge. the very least, they're going to share your article. They're going to tweet about it. They might write about it and reference it in a new post, which is a very easy backlink from a big site, which might've been hard to get originally. Things like this.
1: So you're going to seed your article uh, and you're basically doing the pre-production work where you're building a list of influencers. You're talking about some of them in your content. You're sharing it. You're taking their advice on how you can optimize the piece of content with the hopes that they're going to share it when it's launched and then also potentially reference it in their own content Outside of the initial launch plan, let's call that our launch plan, what comes after the content has been published?
2: I actually break it down to pre-launch, launch, post-launch. So that's kind of stuff that pre-launch. We'd also be working with other places that can get traffic so forums and things, building relationships and becoming a good community member, because believe it or not, forums still can drive traffic, but they're also a great place to research your audience. So we build all that in advance. Then we actually launch the thing. It goes live on the day. There's usually certain things. So we'll tell the influencers. If I told my email list straight away, great, they're going to love it. Imagine if they come across and they find that so-and-so influencers commented on it already before they've even read about the thing. Or imagine they hear about it firsthand from those guys instead. So we'll work with the influencers first to tell them it's live, try and get a big burst of traffic straight away, see if it can trend upwards. A big thing with traffic is it almost all follows a viral S-curve. So you have, we're on video right now, but obviously you guys won't see it. It's very gradual at first, and then it spikes upwards, and then it flattens off. A lot of people don't promote enough to get to that spike where it starts to pick up. So what we do is we call it trading up the chain. Ryan Holiday talks about this. You need to take that win and create another win off the back of it and another win off the back of that until you get enough traction to actually start seeing an spiking growth. So we'll do certain things. We'll start running traffic. We might start running traffic to influencers as well. So they start seeing the post. We'll do an email outreach. We're pushing it in forums. We're just trying to get an initial surge as much as we can. A beautiful thing as well, if you go through your Twitter feed and you see that, let's say Sujan Patel shares the article, and then other influencers who follow Sujan also share it. They share his tweet. How many people do you know who reach out to them and say, hey, thanks for sharing my article that Sujan shared? Hardly anyone. But... You now have a connection and you have a way in through the door. So that person might have a podcast or something. Hey, if you want me to do an episode just for your audience where we talk about the stuff we talked about in that article, I'm more than happy to do it. I've not spoken to anyone about it yet. If I was to try and pitch them cold, that'd be hard. But now I'm trading up the chain. The fact that they've already shared my article with their audience means that they are interested. And if they don't pay attention... It's very unlikely that they will because there's this commitment principle where they've already said that the content is good. Now you can use it to leverage other things and keep pushing and keep pushing to get this traction as you go along. Now that only goes so far, you're just trying to create as many opportunities as possible during that launch. So we'll be running paid ads and we'll be testing to get them profitable. We'll be running ads to influencers, people who actually write about this kind of thing as well. So about they're seeing it. We'll start the link building process. There's two types, really. So SEO takes a while. Even when you've got the links, it can still take a while for you to actually see the results. For example, this article I've just built, there's 125 sites linking to it that I know of, but Google has only picked up 40. So even though those links exist, Google still hasn't seen it. There's no difference in our traffic, things like this. I'd be mad to ignore SEO because it can drive $200,000 in sales a year just from that one article.
1: But it's a long-term growth channel. It's not an immediate boost most of the time.
2: Exactly. So that's why we're doing these other things in the meantime to actually get that traffic. Influencers are great. They send spikes of traffic, but then it dies down. But it means you can start getting those bursts and things and getting more people to talk about it because no one eats at an empty restaurant. Mm -hmm. So we're doing all the link building. We are finding opportunities. We are doing link earning. So podcasts like yourself, guest posts, repurposing content, all these different things while also starting to scale our paid ads up. So we might start off early at just $5 a day. We're testing different variations to find an ad that is most profitable. Then after that, as long as it's within range, we can scale it up. So now I think we spend about $55 a day, simply because our lead to sales time is about 40 days. So I can't afford to spend $1,000 a day because we don't see a sale for 40 days from that.
1: Just to recap some of the things that you're saying, you leverage your influencer relationships, you're building influencer relationships prior to your launch. When you launch, you're not just relying on SEO, you're posting your content in forums, you're being a good forum community member, you're re-engaging with the people that are talking about your content. I noticed that you mentioned Twitter a few times as the channel where you're doing a fair amount of engagement. And instead of waiting for that content to hit the sort of growth phase of the S-curve, you're using paid advertising to distribute your content to basically expedite the process of your content really hitting the growth spike. And you're saying that you're spending like five bucks a day on a piece of content. How are you getting a big enough signal dropping a five spot on a piece of content? To me, that does not seem like enough data to be able to tell what the conversion rates are going to be.
2: The reason we do $5, and you can spend more, most people who I talk to, they don't have much experience in paid ads at all. And they're kind of scared of running paid ads because they don't know the numbers at first and they don't know what the conversions are. So when I recommend it, I'm normally talking to small business owners. At $5 a day, they might run one test for four days before a winner is found. And then they keep that control and then they do another test and another test. So it might be two weeks before they find the best performing ad. But because they're driving traffic to content and the content converts, they are seeing leads and sales and things from that. But rather than just kind of go with whatever advert we did at the start, we keep gradually improving because then the relevance goes up, the cost goes down, and it converts better.
1: I got to interrupt you and ask a question. I'm assuming that a lot of the paid advertising you're doing is going to be on the Facebook network using Facebook and Instagram. Yes. Great. If you're doing a $5 a day ad buy, my understanding that content promotion on Facebook is about a $5 CPM. That means you're getting a thousand impressions a day and you're saying, hey, it's going to take you four or five days to basically pick a winner in your ad group. So if you're running, let's say five ads in five days, you are getting 5,000 impressions spread across five ads to pick a winner. How is that enough data to figure out whether an ad is converting?
2: So we are going off statistical significance. We're not moving on until we find a winner. Usually from the structure that we write adverts, they convert very well anyway. Also, we're doing it slightly different than most people. So what we will do is we will create a control group of the most ideal person for our article. So they're going to convert higher, but they are going to be more expensive to get clicks from. And we're not going for a click goal. We're going for a view, which is usually cheaper. I am testing to see which ad, when shown to our perfect audience, is converting best. The reason being, I don't want machine learning or anything like that at this stage. I am literally just using old school direct response principles where I'm running maybe four images at first to get enough data from our perfect audience to say this image works best. Then we're testing headlines, we're testing calls to action and things like this. Usually it takes three days anyway for Facebook to kind of sort their stuff out. By the third day, we usually find a winner. If not, it's the fourth or the fifth. So after about 15 days of a low budget, we can find a winning ad. I could spend $25 the first day and just find it like that. But we do it staggered because I'm trying not to burn out the audience because they're just a focus group. They're a focus group of the ideal people. And I'm trying to test which element. I don't want them to see 95 variations all on day one, all this different stuff. I'm just trying to gradually figure out which one is the winner.
1: So you have a small audience hyper-targeted, and you're basically starting off and saying, okay, the only thing I care about, the only difference between my five ads, we're just going to change the image. Then once you pick the best image, $25 for the week, then the next week you say, great, we have the image nailed down. We're going to roll with that image. Now we're going to change the headline. Okay, that's another week. Now we're going to change the call to action. Maybe we'll change the product description. Now we have four weeks worth of $25. It's $100 a spend on this audience that's 10,000 people. You got a couple of impressions per person, and you have figured out what the right elements for your ad are with the hyper-targeted audience. So you got the perfect ad.
2: Yeah. Then we go broad. Usually as well, our impressions, we'll get more impressions for cheaper. So we're never stuck at like 5,000 impressions. We usually get way more just because as the, our ads are written in such a way that the relevance goes up pretty fast so that they are responding. So a lot of people will struggle with paid ads because they are hyper-specific to this person. What we do is we start to remove some of those layers. So it might be just someone... Instead of someone who lives in San Diego, who's a content marketer, who's interested in this topic, XYZ, we might just go as far as they're a content marketer in the US. Suddenly, our audience goes to like 4 million people. The cost to show it to people is so much lower. We'll change our goal to a conversion goal because we know already that people were converting. Even when we we're just trying to show it as a view metric, we know they're clicking and they're converting and we're measuring all that data and we're getting that feedback. So broader audience, straight away, the cost dropped to actually see it. Oh, uh, it just hit
1: me. The way that you're allowed to spend so efficiently is that your conversion metric, when you place your first set of ads, when you're just figuring out how to test the variables, you're saying, hey, Facebook, I'll pay you for the view. I don't care if it converts. You're getting the conversion data.
2: That's it, because it will convert. And I will know which one is getting the most clicks and things like that. Because it's old school metrics. You're looking at four newspapers with four headline topics. Three of them you might just scan straight past and not even pay attention to, but one gets your attention and you start reading the article. That's like what we were saying about the importance of headlines before, and then the importance of the introduction to pull them in. It's the exact same thing. A news feed is basically one long newspaper that they're scrolling through, and we're trying to get their attention with that one thing. So that's why I'm doing views, because I want people, I want to see what is getting the attention of the ideal person. Because when we go broad afterwards, that's when the machine learning kicks in. So we go broad, we set it for a conversion goal, and this finalized advert goes out there. Guess who's going to convert? It's going to be the same ideal people that we built the advert around. So Facebook starts showing it to people who are not quite right, and a couple of other people are a little bit better, and it starts to show it to the best people who start to convert. Because we didn't specify, we're not being charged for specificity. But the machine learning program says, hey, this group of people, this subset converts well. Let's start showing it to more and more people like that because that's a good experience for them. So now we're getting this laser targeting, but we're not paying for the laser targeting upfront. So I understand that you're paying for your ads based on,
1: hey, Facebook, I'm going to pay you just to show this ad to this group. And that's why you're able to keep the impression levels high and the costs relatively low to figure out what the right ad is. Once you feel like you have the right ad, then you're coming back and saying, okay, I'm going to target a large audience and I only want to pay for the conversions. And Facebook comes back and says, I know who's going to convert on this. It's the original audience that you
2: said. Exactly. And the more data we feed into it, the more people who see it and convert, the lower the cost keeps going down. So we got an advert right now and the leads were costing me eight dollars four days ago, but now they're costing a dollar each because sometimes people read it today and they opt in tomorrow. And that data obviously isn't shown on Facebook, but it's also because they're getting better and better at their targeting. So the relevance is going up. And the beauty of it is people are actually sharing our adverts with their friends. So they're putting it in front of people without us even paying for it to go in front of people.
1: So when you have an ad that you are scaling, right, and you're starting to build this audience, you're doing your traffic generation, how much time does it take for you to understand what the optimal CPA you're going to get to for that ad is?
2: It really does depend. I've had ads before that do it on kind of like day four. I've had ads where I haven't even gone through the full testing process and it's already hitting those market points just because the content that we're sending them to is so good as well. But like I said, I usually deal with people who don't have a huge ad budget. So a lot of the advice that they get is to throw a heap of cash straight away to find a winner. What happens is they lose all their money. They find a winner. They've got no money to spend on that winner. So I'm trying to help people along who are usually quite conservative about these kinds of things. So it is a longer ramp up time But they now have a flywheel that brings people in for lower cost than it's actually converting at, And so they can just keep running that. They can keep scaling it. Even if they didn't move to another ad platform, there's millions of people on Facebook in their niche audience that they could run that to for years and years.
1: So talk to me about when you're promoting a piece of content, this is where I'm coming in and I'm like, hey, shamelessly asking you, I can run podcast advertising and I talk about this publicly in our monthly updates run it through the knit audio platform. And I estimate that we're getting a listener. 90% of our listeners become subscribers for a buck 25. I throw as much money as I possibly can into that platform. It's a buck 25, a listener, you know, I can easily sell those listeners through sponsor relationships and monetize them for more than a dollar. When you're thinking about doing advertising primarily through Facebook like this, what is the cost that you can expect to get down to and I'll say that in my testing of the Facebook platform, I was looking at 5 to $10 a subscriber. It wasn't even close to the type of conversion rates that I'm getting through other platforms, specifically podcast advertising. Am I doing it wrong or is Facebook just more expensive?
2: Possibly you're doing it wrong in that you might be sending a totally cold audience to the wrong thing at first.
1: Let's just work on the assumption it's a shitty landing page because most <laughs> of the time we're driving people to the iTunes app store. Just try to drive people right to the podcast page in
2: iTunes. And how many calls to action do you think are on there? There's so many things going against you. It's like, hey, here's another show you might like, and here's this, and here's this. It's why I never recommend people to put YouTube videos in their content. Because yes, you might have recorded this awesome YouTube video. But when it ends, it's like the latest Avengers movie trailer. And then there's this, and then there's this. And they're no longer paying attention to your content. So you always need one call to action on where you're sending them. The ad and the offer are both related and how that works from there. Like I said, we're getting subscribers right now, not just visitors. We're getting subscribers for less than a dollar US and I can afford to spend $23 per subscriber based on our conversion rate to customer, what a subscriber is worth. So early on, I might be spending $23 at first to get an ad that is... I might even be spending more, but I know as soon as it gets to $23, I'm breaking even and anything below that is a profit and then we keep improving and tweaking. That's why improving the offer is almost just as important as improving the advert. A lot of people focus on just the traffic, but I don't know if you've spoken to the guys at Client Boost. Definitely should. They're an AdWords agency, but they don't just do AdWords. They also control the landing page that it goes to. Because of that, the offer converts, because if you've got a great advert but a bad offer, it doesn't matter. So you'll lose clients and things like this. So it's really smart, but they do those two things because people stay with them for years. And let's be honest, we can work with clients who have a great product, but they don't know how to put an offer page together. So if you do drive traffic for them, and even if you're getting traffic at this great cost, it doesn't matter if the salesperson at the other end can't convert it. So ideally, I never go for the sale straight away. One, because it's not going to happen that often. Two, if I get them to become a subscriber instead... They're like 40% more likely to buy, but also future articles, like I can email them, they'll read the future articles, they'll help share, they become a part of my own audience.
1: That's where the MarTech podcast audience is a little different, where our product is, they're a subscriber, we're audience building. Yeah. So it's like the end goal is to get people to the subscriptions, which means get them into the right podcast app store, which we don't control.
2: But what about if, let's say that you have a really good episode and it's all transcribed, And there's a lead magnet offer for them there. You drive traffic, cold audience to that page. They love the episode. They read the stuff and they take the call to action and they become a subscriber. Then once they're a subscriber, you can email them and say, Hey, you should subscribe to the show. Here's a link to the app store to subscribe. Because that email list, you'll be able to monetize that with sponsorships just as well as you can the episode. Plus you own it. So you can email them five times about five different episodes rather than it being that one-time thing that they come across.
1: We just launched the newsletter and that's part of the strategy is, there you go? should we drive people to the newsletter to get them engaged with the content or should we drive them to the content? I'm going to stop here. And as we've talked about the connection between content, building an influencer program and generating traffic, Tomorrow, what we're going to do is we're going to continue this conversation talking about how you can start your retargeting campaigns to maximize the traffic that you're getting, whether it converts right away or whether you can get it to convert down the road. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Daniel Danes-Hunt, the founder of Inbound Ascension and Amp My Content, for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Daniel's going to tell us about how you can optimize your retargeting campaigns. But if you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Daniel, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes or send him a tweet at Two Trees SEO. That's T W O T R E E S S E O. Or you can visit his company's website, which is inboundascension.com. That's two words, I N B O U N D, ascension, A S C E N S I O N.com. A couple of links in our show notes that I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, just head over to martechpod.com. We have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. If you're a subscriber to the Martech podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So we created benjshap.com slash question where you can send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is BenJShap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to part two of our conversation with Daniel Danes-Hutt, the founder of Inbound Ascension and At My Content. We're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Or if you'd prefer to have our content delivered to your inbox, we also have a once a week newsletter. To subscribe, go to benjschapp.com newsletter. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.